and uh, this is the start of a series. I, I, want to, I want to say thank you to the Pennington Foundation for making this possible. Uh, Lori Berkman has been a leader in this topic, and frankly, you know, this is one of those cases where good ideas start outside of Washington. Is that a surprise? I mean, that's not a surprise. And uh, fortunately, we're bringing them to Washington, I think, to help with a very, very important set of insights and perspectives that we need. Uh, and we're going to explore that a bit tonight. Uh, I was talking with, with my good friend David Silverberg, who uh, we've, we've uh, been co-conspirators in keeping the world honest for the last 20 years or so. He's a very good friend, and, and uh, he wrote a book recently on this question of leadership in crisis. And of course, every crisis has, a, uh, it has there, there's a crisis inside a crisis. You know, when you have a, uh, something like Sandy or Katrina or something that happens, that is by itself legitimately a crisis, but then there's a crisis that emerges very quickly. And that's the crisis of authority of governments and, uh, to respond. And what the government frequently doesn't uh, quite know what to do, and yet all around them, the private sector is mobilizing. It's the most astounding thing that we've had a chance to see, and we see it everywhere. Um, and it's typical, really. You know, the, the, the private sector has a capacity uh, to m so much agility and responsiveness that government struggles with, to be perfectly honest. And yet you need the broad structure of government, you know, to make this work as well. So we're going to try to explore these different aspects of what we're calling resiliency, community resiliency in a time of crisis. This is Lori's personal passion, and we're lucky that she's willing to take the lead on this, and she's been doing this with the Pennington Family Foundation for, for a number of years, and she started a center on community resiliency uh, uh, down in, in uh, Louisiana. And through her conversations with us, we decided we should be bringing this here. I, so I want to say thank you to you, Lori, thank you to the Pennington Family Foundation for this, and then also say thank you to Walmart that's, that's also making this possible. We're going to explore various dimensions where, where a country you know, comes together at a time of crisis and the indispensable role that's played by the government, but especially by the nonprofit sector. And today we're going to explore the role that philanthropy plays during times of crisis. And I think probably everyone here is always touched and moved by this when a crisis happens, and you see it everywhere. You know, whether it's mobilizing to, to you know, get blankets up to, up to New Jersey, or you're raising money in your school, or this, everything. It's just a wonderful quality in this country. But honestly, we don't join up well as a government and a country on this front. And we need to learn how we can be building this even to a stronger fabric. You know, each strand may not be so strong, but when we weave them together, it's a remarkably strong fabric. And that's what we're going to explore today. Lori, you're going to get this started for real. I want to say thank you for getting it. Well, why don't I turn it over to you and you can introduce our panel and get this going. Thank I you. Will. Thanks thank for coming. Thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Hamry. Um, completely stole my thunder. That was fabulous. Um, and, and to CSIS um, for providing this platform so, so that we can engage in this discussion. 
Um, thanks to Ozzy Nelson and to um, Rob Wise and the entire um, external relations team for um, organizing this event. Uh, <clears throat> very much appreciate it. And special thanks to Walmart um, for their support. Um, and, and I also want to thank the trustees of the Pennington Family Foundation because they do make the final decisions about our funding and they see this as a value, um, that, um, that this series as a value to gain more information to bring back to Louisiana, which is a disaster prone state. So um, uh, thank you to them. We started this uh, several years ago um, with four main objectives in mind and the first one was to gauge, engage in discussion when we weren't in the middle of a disaster. And those of you who have experienced disaster know how hard it is to network and talk and get things done in the middle of a disaster and plan. Um, and, um, but unfortunately, the f our first one was the night that Sandy hit. So um, this year, that premise didn't quite work. <laughs> so, um, so we might talk a little bit about Sandy, obviously, <coughs> tonight, because um, we are still in the middle of a disaster. Um, the second premise uh, was to look at disasters through different lenses um, and to look at topics from across sectors. Uh, and in this, in this case, we're looking at um, the topic of philanthropy, but we're looking at it um, through the eyes of business, through the eyes of policy, and then through the eyes of philanthropy and corporate philanthropy and other types of philanthropy. Um, but there, um, <coughs> and, and then also academia, and then, and then obviously we have um, Tony Pippa from USAID. And so we're looking at it from the international space as well. So we're really trying to look at things from a cross-sector perspective. Um, the, the third uh, uh, premise was to focus on, on disaster-prone communities um, and their resilience to recover um, in a prompt and adaptable way uh, and, and to look at them in an asset-based way. So look at the strengths of the Northeast, for instance, the strengths that they bring to their own recovery uh, and, or the strengths that the Gulf Coast has, uh, which are different than the strengths that the Northeast has, and to use that as a way to help them in a long-term recovery. And, and the fourth, um, which is my uh, big pet peeve, <laughs> and is my, is, um, these, these aren't lesson learned discussions. We all, we all go to lesson learned discussions, but the fourth is really to take the lessons that we learn and turn them into practice or to action. And we want, um, and we consistently learn new lessons every time there is uh, a, a disaster. But we want to take them and make them into real interventions that can actually save lives. So those are the kind of four premises of why we do this series. And like I said, tonight we'll be focusing on effective, what effective philanthropy is. Um,
the way this usually works, if you haven't been to a CSIS event, is um, I'll introduce this amazing esteemed panel and give each of them three to five minutes to talk um, or give an overview of their work in disaster philanthropy. Um, and then I'll ask each of them a series of questions. And then uh, I will then ask um, the audience to ask some questions to the panelists. Um, once that's over, there'll be a reception. And we'll conclude for the evening. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and begin, because we've got a lot to cover tonight. <laughs> um, I'll uh, start by, um, I'm going to start over here with our first panelist. I'm going to start this way. I'm for uh, only, this is how they're going to be speaking. Um, our first panelist is Bob Audenoff, and he's the president and CEO of the Center for, the newly formed Center for Disaster Philanthropy. Um, and please know that since it's been launched, there has been a disaster every week. <laughs> Not a joke. Um, so I <laughs> might want to take that into consideration. <laughs> Bob, uh, Bob is formerly was 10 years with GuideStar. And if any of you are funders or, or nonprofits even, you know what GuideStar is. Um, uh, most people are members of GuideStar, but it's an industry. Uh, um, but, um, Bob is really a veteran in philanthropy and nonprofit leadership and entrepreneurship. Um, and GuideStar is an industry leader in the use of providing high quality data to help donors make better decisions and improve nonprofit practice. And he was the perfect choice to lead the Center for Disaster Philanthropy because I can't think of a, a more important place to have. Uh, high accountability than um, uh, that's such a center. Um, next, right next to uh, Bob is um, Steve uh, Dozier from um, Walmart, who has an incredible, very, very long, uh, shortening your um, Vita was very tough, I will tell you. Uh, he, because he has been in a lot of disasters. <laughs> um, since his tenure at Walmart, he's uh, and led the emergency response for Hurricanes Gustav and Ike, and recent events including wildfires in California, the derecho, um, which was a new word for, for even me um, recently, um, impact, uh, impacting the northeastern U.S. and Hurricanes Irene and Sandy. Um, through Steve's leadership, uh, Walmart has become a leader in the arena of disaster resiliency and public-private partnerships. And we're so happy you're here, and we're happy to partner with Walmart and that they come on board. Um, right next to me is a partner, I would say, partner in crime, has been working with David Abramson from Columbia University's National Center for Disaster Preparedness uh, since Katrina. He has, he's a deputy director and the director of research um, over there. And his areas of study include disaster recovery and resiliency, uh, and has literally spent more time in the Gulf Coast than I have. And I live in the Gulf Coast, uh, studying uh, resilience 
and mental health of children uh, at, before and after Katrina and the Gulf Coast oil spill. We just finished a study together uh, uh, looking at donor, a guide for donors that wanted to work cross-sector um, and, and not just within, uh, not, not just with other donors, but work with state and other municipalities and uh, federal governments. And so uh, he's going to tell you some about that today. So I'm excited to have him here. Um, next to me on my left is uh, Joe Ruiz from the U UPS Foundation Humanitarian Relief Program. Uh, and he, his job there is leveraging UPS's logistical expertise uh, with skilled volunteers and financial resources to enhance preparedness, response, and, and post-crisis recovery efforts and of uh, UPS's humanitarian partners. Um, and he oversees UPS's logistics action teams. Um, he's worked all around the coast, and he's also been deployed um, all across the world. So uh, UPS is, is in, their global initiatives have been, are truly uh, incredible. So it's done amazing work. And finally, my very, very good friend, Tony Pippa, who I met way back when, during Katrina, uh, came down to set up the Louisiana Disaster Recovery Foundation. Um, it's come a long way. Is now the deputy assistant to the administrator at USAID's Bureau of Policy and Planning and Learning, where he, his portfolio is focused on aid effectiveness and donor engagement, as well as streamlining foreign assistance planning and reporting. Um, he has also been worked with countless NGOs. He has taught at Harvard University and has run family foundations and has worked in philanthropy for as long as I can remember. So uh, I think he'll have a lot of perspectives to offer. Uh, so if we can begin, um, I would love to start with Bob. We'll start with you uh, from the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, maybe to give us an overview of philanthropy and um, disaster philanthropy and why we would even need a center for disaster right. philanthropy. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Lori. And uh, thanks to the Pennington Foundation and thanks for CSIS and for the Walmart folks for, uh, for sponsoring this event today. Um, philanthropy in America is a remarkable event. Um, every day, every American is touched by a nonprofit organization. It could be the school where you're your kids go every day. It could be a hospital where a loved one goes. It could be a community organization. Every American in some way is touched by a nonprofit every year. And when we think about the nonprofit sector, we tend to think of the small foundations we interact with. But collectively, it's a huge part of our society and a huge part of our economy. There's about a million charities in the United States. There's about 1.8 million nonprofits. Americans will this year contribute about $300 billion to charity. Uh, almost um, every American uh, contributes to charity. Almost every, um, about half of all Americans volunteer each year uh, to work with charity. So it's about 10% of all jobs and about 8% of GDP. So the, the private philanthropic sector is, is really important. 
Um, what's also remarkable is what happens in times of disasters. Americans are incredibly generous with their dollars and with their time. Um, and you need to, uh, this need to go no further to see just how much energy and motivation comes from disaster uh, philanthropy than to think about last night when there was a four and a half hour concert at Madison Square Garden that was seen by maybe two billion people around the world. Um, what to me was so uh, important about that event um, was not only were they raising money, but they were beginning to try to educate um, the world about just what happens in times of disaster and the times after the disaster. Uh, and that's what brings me to what is the, sometimes the problem with, or the challenge with disaster philanthropy, is that it tends to end as soon as the television cameras uh, have turned off and the, uh, the nation goes on to think about other problems and other issues. Um, we've already raised about $250 million for Sandy-related activities. Uh, that um, compares about the same with what was raised for the tsunami. It's um, in Japan last year. It's um, a lot less than uh, Katrina and Haiti, and we can talk some more about that later. But it's still a remarkable amount of money. But we know from um, um, uh, past experience that within a few weeks, the amount of money actually going for disaster philanthropy will pretty much um, uh, dwindle out. Uh, and um, unfortunately, uh, too often it's out of sight, out of mind. Um, for many donors, for every, many Americans will think, because we no longer are seeing this on television, it must mean that this disaster has been fixed, it's been solved, it's not an issue anymore. Uh, and what that forgets about is the long and arduous and often most difficult parts of disasters, and that's the recovery and the rebuilding. So um, the other part about disaster philanthropy is we tend to think that um, my donation or my, our collective donations will solve this problem. Uh, and disaster, all those dollars I talked about, the hundreds of billions of dollars that is uh, raised for nonprofits and for disasters isn't by itself going to solve this problem. And I think one of the, the things I like the most about tonight's panel is we're going to hear from government and we're going to hear from the private sector and we're going to hear from academia and all of them together need to work on this problem and even then it's probably bigger than what we've got right now um, in terms of resources. So one of the goals of the Center for Disaster Philanthropy is to try to make sure that disasters remain in the public eye and that when we think about disasters, we don't just think about the, the one month of relief. It's a terrible thing. Of course we need to continue to be generous in our support for um, the immediate relief, but we need to rem remember that after the TV cameras go, uh, we still need philanthropic support um, for the recovery and for the rebuilding. And one of the things to me that's been most interesting about the whole Sandy experience is for the first time we're beginning to hear government officials talk more and more about mitigation. 
We used to talk about mitigation in terms of disaster-prone areas, and when we said that, we meant somewhere else. We're beginning to realize that disaster-prone areas might mean us, right? Wherever we live, uh, that we may be in a disaster-prone area. And so we're now beginning to hear government officials, I think, talk about mitigation, as well as emphasize um, the role of planning and preparation. So that's what part of what the center wants to do. We want to help um, donors think about the full arc of disaster relief. Uh, and in doing so, what we hope is that we'll take those hard-earned dollars that you have, those generous dollars that you contribute to nonprofits and to disaster relief every year, and we'll find more effective ways uh, to leverage that money and to increase the impact of that work because we know um, the, the, the challenges are so great and the demands are so great that we've got to make sure that we use every dollar just as effectively as we can. So that's what we're going to try to do with the center. Be a source of information about best practices. Be a source of information about um, what we're learning. Be a source of helping donors collaborate and coordinate so that they can be more effective in their giving. So I'll stop there. And Thank you. That was great. Steve? Hi. Hi. You want to tell us about Walmart strategies on disaster sure. philanthropy? Sure, Lori, thank you. And look, first, let me just thank you for the opportunity. Let me thank the Pennington Family Foundation and the center this evening. And Walmart is a very proud corporate supporter of your series, and we look forward to actively participating in, uh, in the upcoming series as well. So let me quickly tell you a little bit about our company because I think it'll help you understand what I want to describe to you very quickly. And so Walmart is a large retailer. We uh, serve customers in 28 countries around the world. We have uh, over 10,000 retail stores around the world and we employ about 2.2 million associates globally. Now a lot of what I want to describe to you takes place in the in the United States and obviously that's uh, that's the, the details that I want to go into this evening. Um, so those numbers I just gave you are significant because what our company came to recognize some time ago, and Lori, I promise I'm not going to talk about lessons, but wh what our company recognized quite some time ago is we have a responsibility, we have an obligation to the communities where we serve our consumers to be there for them in good times and bad. If you think about the numbers of associates that we employ, our business, retailing is about details, it's about people, and it's about having those associates to serve our customers. So if the reach that our associates have around the United States alone, it places us in the position to be able to ha help and aid these communities when suffering occurs. So that's, that's some of the backdrop that I wanted you to, to understand because what I want to describe to you now are actions. We do these, uh, we take these actions every time that there's a, a, a disruption, uh, a disaster uh, to our stores in the U.S. And these are, we, we perform these during Hurricane Sandy, we perform these during Isaac, and it's became a, kind of a rhythm within our emergency operations center, which, which uh, exists, and I'd like to just quickly introduce Mark Cooper, who is with me on this uh, this evening and during the reception this evening I invite you to introduce yourself to Mark. He's our senior director 
responsible for our emergency management department at Walmart. But um, quick, quick, let, let me just tell you that we, we prepare year-round to uh, respond to disasters and recover our associates, our operations, and the communities where we serve. One of the ways we do that is through establishing relationships before the disaster occurs, and so that's why it becomes a year-round responsibility. But our government agencies and officials, our elected officials, our NGO partners, uh, and I need to call out the American Red Cross, the Salvation Army, and also Feeding America, because we, we interact with those NGOs uh, uh, every day of the year in some capacity. When our emergency operations center is active, the American Red Cross and the Salvation Army have seats, and they're part of our team that helps manage our response to, to, to these disasters. Now, I want to tell you just real briefly what I think our real strength is as a company, and that's our ability to move the life-sustaining merchandise that the communities need when they need it into those communities when they're suffering. We have the logistical uh, operations to do that. That's, that's what we do. That's what we're about. And it sounds very simple, uh, but it's a very complex undertaking, but, but we have a lot of experience in, in doing that. Next is empowerment. <clears throat> and this is something we're extremely proud of. Our store managers, something, there's something over 4,000 stores in the U.S. alone, they know it's okay to do the right thing without calling the corporate office to get permission. Uh, and I could give you example after example of that, but there's, there's one in particular I want to mention uh, during, that occurred during Hurricane Sandy, and that, this occurred at Tappahannock, Virginia. And one evening, the local hospital had harvested an organ, and the power failed. And they thought that dry ice would help them preserve and save this organ so that a, the recipient, the patient, could, could, could receive it. Well. Uh, our associate Nick at the local Walmart store answered the phone and while Walmart doesn't sell dry ice I will tell you that uh, coincidentally during a disaster such as this when we expect the utility power to fail we in advance of uh, storms we ship dry ice to our stores so that they can use it in various ways to preserve some of our cold cold processing so associate Nick and the manager of that store took it upon themselves to deliver dry ice to the local hospital and the organ was saved, and hopefully someone's life is, was enriched because of that. Now, that's the type of empowerment. If, if Nick had had to spend several hours uh, tracking back into our corporate office, that organ could have, could have been lost, and what a tragedy that would have been. So that's, that's our, a little bit about our empowerment. <clears throat> and lastly, I talked to you about our associates. So something we do every time is we... Um, we create an associate call center. We don't necessarily create it, we keep, we keep the space available, but our associates volunteer time, and for, so 24 hours a day throughout a disaster when our associates are impacted. We operate this associate call line, and in advance, we have provided this number to all of our associates, and we ask them to, to call us. Now, I will tell you that sometimes that's difficult, so we will start calling them if, in fact, we don't, we don't hear from all those associates, but we will Literally, literally make tens of thousands of calls if necessary. But we want to know um, your status. Are you okay? Is your family okay? What your needs are. And our company also provides a stipend to those associates 
we, we refer to as a, a, a disaster dis displacement pay. It's a nominal amount, but if someone is uh, ordered evacuated or loses their home, then we, we help those associates with that. But um, a quick story regarding this call center, things that I think our associates have, have learned to expect this call center to be open. But true story, during uh, Hurricane Irene, the associate call center is active. And one of our associates' mothers phones us from Texas and says that my daughter and nine other persons, now her daughter, two other adults, and seven children, they are trapped in an apartment in Louisiana. The water level is rising. They have waited too long to evacuate. What can we do? Is there anything we could do to help her daughters? There was problems with communication because of the phone service. So our, the relationships that our EOC has with the authorities in Louisiana, in, in this case with the National Guard, they were able to send a rescue team into this apartment and rescue these 10 individuals, seven of which were children. So those are all aspects of what we provide that are actionable uh, steps that we take and we ensure are available throughout crises that, that our company uh, uh, becomes involved in. So let me just quickly close by telling you just a few just a few quick numbers just to let you know how often we do this. But since 2007, uh, we have contributed cash and in-kind donations 316 times around the globe. So those were hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, drought, famine, um, anything that, that has significantly occurred around the globe, we have provided relief in those cases. So thank you for your time, Lori. Thank you very much, Lori. Uh, thank you to CSIS and to Walmart for sponsoring this. So there's been a lot of conversation, particularly in this town recently, about fiscal cliffs. And there's this notion with a fiscal cliff that you're somehow at the top and you're peering down, about to head into some abyss. And what I'd like to introduce is a, a new metaphor here, which is the recovery cliff. But this time, you're at the bottom and you're looking up. And you're trying to think about, how do I scale back up to that cliff? And what does it take? So if the fiscal cliff is the pre-event, the recovery cliff is after the event, and you're trying to get back up. A lot of the work that we do at our center is looking at the impact of disasters on people, on communities, on populations, on vulnerable groups. And we've done a lot of this examination where we keep on finding pretty much the same story told again and again, despite the lessons learned, you keep on seeing the same kind of problems that people face and they, they often find themselves in very similar circumstances at the bottom of a cliff, whether in, they're in Louisiana, in Mississippi, or they're in the Rockaways, Breezy Point, or Staten Island, they're facing that same cliff. Um, Lori has been, in fact, a, a terrific partner for us because in part she gave us an opportunity to take a step back from some of the work that we do looking at the, uh, the impacts on populations and to begin to ask a couple of different questions. She allowed us to ask a question, how do uh, mid-sized US cities prepare for long-term recovery before the disaster even occurs? And it gave us a chance to visit a couple of cities around the country and talk to people who are in harm's way but have not experienced a disaster to find out what are they doing 
to prepare for that eventuality? The answer, by the way, is not a whole lot. And that's probably not a surprise to anybody. Uh, then after this, she also gave us funding to, to ask the question, and what is the role and what are the evolving trends for disaster philanthropy? What is the space that disaster philanthropy can fill? What are the gaps? What is needed? Uh, and as any good academic, I've left you a little handout. So you have a, a one page in front of you, which has seven key trends that I'd like to at least mention and bring to your attention. And we wrote this before Hurricane Sandy. And when I read this over, I'm thinking, this is exactly what we're seeing yet again. So trend number one is that there will be less federal money to support recovery than in prior years. And we've already begun to see this play out. We've watched the negotiations between the governors of the states, the federal government, the administration, over how much money would be available, how much will be for restoration, how much would go to mitigation. Is mitigation an important part of recovery or not? These all have implications for philanthropy, by the way. Number two, recovery is becoming more of a professional discipline, and that's a good thing. There's a national disaster recovery framework, which we may touch upon. And it means that there are a lot of people who think of recovery in some ways as disaster recovery as a life's work, a thing to do, a profession. It becomes a bit of a bureaucracy, though. And with bureaucracies come rules and restrictions and limitations and lack of innovation. And again, there could be a role for philanthropy to come in and break log jams. Number three, there has been a huge shift in who who holds the risk? Where's that catastrophic risk? Where's the insurance coverage? And in fact, there have been huge shifts away from people being able to adequately protect themselves with appropriate insurance for a variety of structural reasons and probably psychological ones as well. And so what this means is communities are much more uncovered or at risk than they had really thought they were. And this has an implication after an event like Sandy. And now you go to look to see, well, how much risk did we, you know, did we manage to capture? How much did we cover? And the answer is not as much as you thought. Number four, the infrastructure, the critical infrastructure in this country is decaying and is a time bomb. And this is something that every couple of years, the, uh, the American Society for Civil Engineers grade how well we're doing as a country. And the grades range from D plus to C minus on our critical infrastructure. And they said it would take about, I think the last estimate was $2.2 trillion to address and fix the critical infrastructure problems we have. And when you look at some of the problems that emerged in Hurricane Sandy and a couple of the hospitals, I think it was immediately evident what happens when you have not just decaying infrastructure, but you haven't put enough thought or planning into what could happen when a disaster occurs and the cascading events that you don't always think about. And this is clearly related to the decaying infrastructure as well. Number five, communities don't really understand the risks that they're exposed to. This gets to a little bit of the mitigation problem too. It gets to a climate change question in some ways. Are people really thinking about the true risks that they face in their community. I mean, in New York City, we kind of forgot that we're actually a port city. I think we had a sobering reminder, I'm from New York, that that is exactly what we are. Nobody expected the storm to come up and make a left, but it happens. And we're sitting there, and I mean, for the, for the last several years, I've seen model after model that shows this is what a category two and three hurricane will look like in downtown Manhattan. You will have 
a, a cascading wave that could be 20 to 30 feet high going from the battery down. And people would look at that and go, that'll never happen. I don't think they're going to look at those models again in the same way. We only had a tropical storm this time. It wasn't even a category one by the time it made landfall. Number six, and this is a really critical one for disaster philanthropy. There's a very short window of opportunity after the disaster occurs. <clears throat> There's that moment. I have colleagues uh, who, have, who have sort of termed this the uh, conundrum of um, speed versus deliberation. There's an urge for speed after a disaster occurs. The urge to immediately rebuild, restore, put things back to the way they were. At the same time, it is an unbelievable moment and opportunity to be a little bit deliberative and say, is there something better that we could be doing for the community? Is there a way we could structure our discussions about redevelopment and sustainable redevelopment that would allow us to build back so we're not at such risk and so that we actually accomplish things that we might not have otherwise thought about and make ourselves a better community. And then lastly, I think that the point is that we have not really experienced a mega disaster in this country other than Hurricane Katrina. So notwithstanding the governor of my state saying that you know, Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy was you know, as monumental as as Katrina, in some ways, economically, perhaps it did have a huge footprint. There was no question about it. But it didn't have quite the scale, the magnitude, and the, the human suffering of a Katrina. It doesn't mean that we're not uh, at risk for that. We clearly are at risk for that type of an event. And these are all things that hopefully we'll have a chance, and I'll have a chance to uh, reflect upon, where disaster philanthropy can fit in to all of these elements and begin to play a role. Well, thank you. Thank you, Lori. And uh, I want to get, say thanks to Walmart and uh, the Pennington Foundation uh, and the CSIS for uh, supporting this uh, event. Um, UPS is in every uh, community and every uh, country, 200 countries and territories around the world. So every disaster is very personal for us. Every disaster impacts our people. And because of who we are with our logistics capabilities, we have been involved in disaster response and relief for years. But there was a couple of tipping points. I think Katrina, the Southeast Asian tsunami, created situations where, uh, from a foundation perspective and philanthropy perspective, we had not only the community organizations coming looking for us for support, we had all of our customers coming to us looking to get involved. It, it was a, a crisis within a crisis. And it, it really created um, a, a strategy that, that we've employed since 2009, where in a disaster, the, the most critical thing is, from a philanthropy standpoint, is, is partnerships. You, you have to know who you're going to act with. You have to work to prepare um, in advance of a disaster and build relationships and develop uh, the capacity of your partners to uh, be able to improve the response from time to from disaster to disaster. So that's what we did. We, we, we created a program that has four pillars. The first pillar is essentially um, partnering with some of the preeminent relief agencies in the world. Um, again, American Red Cross, Salvation Army, CARE, uh, in the, you know, the, the work, UNICEF, UNHCR. Um, we also work with organizations that bring technology into the disaster response and recovery effort. 
we supported an organization called the Aid Matrix Foundation, which helped develop um, technology that um, connected donors to relief agencies to try to reduce the, um, the, the constant uh, flow of uh, unsolicited goods into the disaster zone. Um, we also try to focus on uh, volunteerism. UPS with 400,000 employees around the world contribute about 1.6 million hours. So what's unique about our foundation is that our philanthropy is connected to our volunteers. In fact, 50% of our, our, our grants are connected that we have to have 50 hours of UPS volunteer activity. So we've created these logistics action teams and emergency teams that partner up with the World Food Program internationally. They support and work with in advance of disasters with the American Red Cross. We also focus on the sector. How can we work together before disasters, um, bringing together academics, bringing together um, civil society, bringing together the private sector. Uh, we, we've engaged with some of the preeminent organizations that are convening organizations like the U.S. Chambers Business Civic Leadership Center that brings public-private partnerships, that works with small businesses to try to um, get them to start thinking about um, disaster resilience and planning. We work with organizations like the National VOAD, Interaction, that bring together the leading agencies. And we work with them on things like consolidation of shipments. How, rather than everybody shipping for themselves, let's consolidate, let's, let's, let's bring it together. Let's introduce technology. For instance, in, in Haiti, we were able to adapt technology that was able to be used for one of the feeding camps for the Salvation Army. And we're now trying to scale that for some of the efforts that are going on in Africa in the Sahel region uh, with UNHCR. What we try to do is to leverage our core skills of logistics to work with these agencies. And we, we have a unique model in the way we provide philanthropy. We provide a certain portion of our grants up front at the beginning of the year before the disasters happen. Part of it goes for capacity building. We want to make sure that the organizations that we're working with um, have the ability to improve the way they provide that service to communities in disasters. So we, we feel like we've been able to fill a niche because we know that most organizations don't want to support capacity building or unrestricted funding. They want to provide programmatic. They want to ask the organization to be able to, um, here's my 100,000, show me that you've got 3 million uh, impacts this year and year. So we try to work with the infrastructure because that's who we are as UPS. We're all about systems, process improvement. So we try to, we try to do that. But we also provide funding for, the, um, for emergency situations that they can activate. We provide in-kind support. Last year we did uh, about $2.7 million, more than 200 flights. Uh, and we've started to realize, though, that there's a, um, a real shift that needs to take place. And it was mentioned earlier. From the urgent, which, which we help fill that gap because we know we're one of the few companies that can get urgent supplies to places. It's a little easier to get it to New York than it is to Kyrgyzstan, but, but both are, are equally damaged at times. But, but we, we realize that there needs to be a shift in the corporate world to focus, because there's a lot of pressure to get that release out within 24 hours. Tell us what we're doing. Get it out now. But what we've done, what we did with Sandy was, our commitment was in two phases. One was an urgent response phase to get 
uh, funds and in-kind support for the American Red Cross. But secondly, a million dollars in 2013, because we know this is a long-term commitment, to grassroots organizations that, that have impactful programs, whether it's in the education sector, um, whether it's in the, in the medical sector, whether it's in reconstruction. And we try to work with organizations that can really make an impact. A couple of organizations like St. Bernard Project, which was formed and born out of uh, some of the failures at Katrina in building, rebuilding homes. They went in, they saw a need, and they did it. And now we, we continue to support that organization. They're working in Joplin. They're now moving into New York. And they're working right now to help support uh, people who've been affected by communication, education, and eventually reconstruction. Um, another, uh, another project, and I'll close with this, that I, that from a thought leadership standpoint, the focus really is on collaboration. Earlier, uh, a year ago when Joplin uh, occurred and uh, a flood of unsolicited goods came into that area, um, all the relief agencies talked about how that takes them off mission. So working in collaboration with the Center for International Disaster Information, with National VOAD, with Interaction, with USAID, uh, we began to talk to organizations about what we can do to get the American public to understand how they can make the most impactful donation. And that is a monetary donation. That's philanthropy. That, that it's, while it's emotionally good to give the sweater that's in your closet, what these organizations really need is funding that they can use for now and for long-term recovery. So we were able to work with the Ad Council, which is one of the EPS partners, and they did a lot of uh, pro bono work. Um, but we had tremendous partners that worked closely over the last year to be able to put out an ad, a PSA, uh, a toolkit that relief agencies can use to help get those funds and let the American public know that what is most important is that philanthropy, that funding that can, that can not only provide for you know, the, the toothbrushes now, but reconstruction, medical supplies, what's ever needed for the long haul. So cash. Cash. Okay. Cash is best. <laughs> cash is cash best. Is what you're saying. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I just don't want anyone to think to send toothbrushes. Cash. <laughs> cash. <laughs> All right, Tony. Well, thanks, Laurie. And uh, I'm honored to be the anchor of this distinguished relay team here that we have on. And thanks again to CSIS and to Walmart and Pennington. Uh, this is really an important topic and, and an important series. So. Uh, my hat's off for continuing to keep this conversation going. Uh, I uh, am from USAID, and uh, you know, most of you know, but we're the lead development agency providing foreign assistance to developing countries. And so I'm going to take this in a little different direction. We're going to talk about um, a global response here. Uh, we have a history of excellence in disaster response through our Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance. And in 2011, put out a new policy framework for the agency. And one of its core seven development objectives is to provide humanitarian assistance and build resilience and preparedness. Um, so I'm not affiliated with, with what we call OFTA, which is the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. Um, I'm affiliated with the Policy Bureau and just uh, helped lead development of the agency's first ever policy on building resilience to recurrent crisis. So I'm going to talk not necessarily about response, but about what we can do so that we have to respond less. Um, and I'm just going to start with a few statistics as to why we thought this is important and why we 
placing such a huge priority actually uh, at the agency on, on doing this. So over the last 30 years, disasters have cost a total in economic losses of about $3.5 trillion. And about a third of those losses were incurred by low and middle income countries. And that's where we know our development gains are at its most fragile. Um, the shocks are most devastating in low income countries. Only 9% of the disasters over the last 30 years have occurred in those countries, but they bore about 48% of the fatalities. And the poor and vulnerable, especially women and children, are disproportionately affected. Over the same period, the last 30 years, the World Bank estimates that one out of every three dollars that we're spending on long-term development aid is lost because of these disasters and because of the current crisis. Take that one step further, over the last 10 years, about US dollars, $90 billion has been spent by international aid donors, but in just nine countries. And that accounts for almost 50% of the humanitarian assistance during that period. Uh, and from USA perspective during that same time, about three quarters of our aid, of our humanitarian assistance, was spent in just 10 countries. So last year, when we encountered uh, yet another significant crisis, worst drought in 60 years in the Horn of Africa, 13.3 million people uh, put at risk for crisis, uh, we understood that these global trend lines, projections, are going to show clear and continuing growth in humanitarian need, especially in some of these regions. Climate change threatens to exacerbate this the frequency and the severity of extreme weather events. And we understood that our development gains in these particular places continue to get undercut as we're deploying long-term development assistance. We get a little way up the cliff and come right back down again. And so for us, uh, in terms of how we're deploying our resources, uh, we're not doing an effective job with our development resources if we're continuing to have to spend humanitarian aid in such large numbers on a regular basis. Uh, and so this led us to think about, you know, how do we build resilience, i.e., how do we build the capacity of those in harm's way, uh, especially those who are most vulnerable, to be able to adapt, uh, to be able to respond and uh, recover from new and changing circumstances more quickly, efficiently, and effectively. And that led us to, uh, um, to, to take on and start looking at how we build resilience in these areas. When we looked at that, uh, we're really building on innovation that's actually happening out in the field. Uh, so in the Horn of Africa, when uh, the, the drought occurred, we had, uh, and it sounds like common sense, but uh, for the first time, in a very coordinated and strategic way had our development practitioners come together with those humanitarian experts that were deployed uh, with our humanitarian assistance to actually do some joint analysis and work from the same problem set and then look at how they could coordinate their planning. Uh, so from a long-term development perspective, we do five-year country plans strategically at the country level. But we had not up to now been putting our humanitarian concerns at the table as those long-term development experts have been doing that planning. Which doesn't make sense when you think you can anticipate, because when you look at the trend lines, that it may not be happening now, it may not happen next year, 
may not even happen in the third year, but probably at some point during those five years, you're going to have a shock or a stress to hit that particular place. We know it because we can look at the trends. We can look at how our dollars have been spent. Um, so why shouldn't we create uh, more flexibility on the long-term development side and actually create space and anticipate what we can do from a strategic perspective on the long-term development side so that when those humanitarian resources are deployed, when that shock occurs, that they can enhance um, and integrate and uh, we can develop programs that were, in fact, what we call layering and sequencing and integrating both our humanitarian assistance and our long-term development. So in doing that, you know, we've set a goal, for example, in the Horn of Africa where this team came together uh, to look at decreasing our humanitarian caseload by a million people over the next five years. And we're going to do that by building both adaptive capacity so working at the household and community level so that uh, those folks have the capacity to be able to respond to new circumstances when they occur. At the same time as doing things around disaster risk reduction and mitigation and prevention. One thing I would stress though is we don't see this as a continuum. This isn't humanitarian uh, handing off to development, which is something that uh, we've been trying to, to think about for, for a long time. We see this as an interdependence and about everyone coming together and understanding that there's going to be a humanitarian situation that might occur. And what we need to do is prepare the way and, and build the capacity for when that occurs. Um, we're focused right now on areas where chronic poverty and the most vulnerable overlap with those shocks and stresses. So if you look at the Venn diagram, it's the sweet spot of, of where that occurs. And that's what we see as recurrent crisis. Um, and I don't want to oversell this. This is going to be very hard work uh, for us as an agency. We are not naturally set up to do this. Our systems, our funding accounts, I mean, we're going to have to work within the funding constraints and, and the way our accounts work. But even our systems and the way in which we think and approach these problems aren't necessarily set up to facilitate this. We've had to make a leadership commitment so that when we hit the roadblocks and we hit the ways in which uh, uh, we hit the bottlenecks that will actually senior leadership is poised to be able to jump in and say here's what we need to do and what we need to do differently. Uh, and it's going to be really challenging in how we measure progress. Because we're used to measuring sort of programs and we've had excellence in our humanitarian programs and in our long-term development programs for a long time and we can, we can measure the progress that we're making as we, as we develop you know, a particular activity. But what we're really talking about is how do those activities package together to develop resilience at a much higher level. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about this is the way we're defining resilience is not just about the household and the community level. But it goes up through the country level and up to the systemic level. And I think a little bit of what we've already heard in terms of, uh, uh, of what's been talked about is at the systemic level and that, that, uh, that heartens me. Um, because we do need to have our systems be able to be resilient. Uh, we're doing this and we're changing the way we do business at USAID and we're trying to change our operations. But we're also working politically at the political level with leaders of the governments where we're actually trying to work uh, in the Horn of Africa because it also has to uh, be their leadership and their focus actually where we're trying to make these uh, development gains sustainable as well. And I think the, the key takeaway I would say is, and Bob mentioned it at the outset, you know, 
Up to now, we've had a huge response in disaster philanthropy at the time of a crisis. But the frequency of those crises are just going to continue to occur. The severity are going to get worse. And I think what we're going to experience is an inability to continue to, continue to raise the amounts of money that we're experiencing over, say, like the last decade. If we look 10, 20, 30 years out, I don't think we can continue to depend on the emotional response of a particular crisis as continuing to be the driver that allows individuals and, and sometimes even philanthropy uh, at the foundation and the corporate level uh, to be the, the thing that, uh, that, that deploys resources and gets resources on the table. I think what we're going to have to do is start to switch to, to some of the thinking that we're starting to switch to. How can we build this in from the start? And I don't think it's just about disaster risk reduction. It is about looking at where the vulnerabilities are, understanding that we're looking and building a common understanding of risk uh, when we look at even how we're uh, deploying philanthropic resources on a regular basis and how we take that into account and sort of build the capacity for us to be much more resilient and flexible and adaptable uh, when these events occur. Um, God, we almost are out of time to even, I think we're almost at audience questions, but I'm going to cheat and cheat you out and ask a couple questions um, to these guys. Um, Tony, do you think, you know, with domestic, domestic, we're so focused domestically on all of the, the disasters that are going on um, and we're spread so thin. Um, do you think that we're we're ignoring sometimes, you know, the a type of the typhoon in the Philippines going on right now, or or the Pacific Rim, you know, and all the deaths in the Pacific Rim? I mean, should we be thinking more globally as philanthropists? Well, I think you. Um, so you have a. a a couple corporations here at the table that are thinking globally. Absolutely. I mean, they, they have a global community, and so um, they see themselves as serving that particular global community. Your U.S. government uh, uh, responds globally as well. Um, there are disasters happening at a certain scale and on a regular basis in lots of different corners of the world uh, at a, um, on an ongoing basis. And I'm not sure we can always think about ensuring that our individual resources, let's say, or individual uh, donations are, are going to continue to be spent on every disaster that occurs. I think that's another thing that, you know, again, prompted us to, to think about uh, how we sort of go the next level. How is it not just about disaster response, but how is it about getting ready uh, to be able to have a disaster actually not be a disaster. And so, um, you know, the, the level of the earthquake that happened in Haiti uh, was an immense disaster, but it was similar to the level of earthquake that happened in Chile, which did not cause anywhere near the uh, amount of damage, fatalities, um, and in fact was you know, uh, something that they were able to recover from fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what we need to be focusing on. How do we build that into the system? Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I would say is, you know, again, and I don't want to downplay the work that we're doing with governments. I mean, I think it, it's, 
it is about local and state and, and federal government. I mean, the federal government obviously is, is focused on this, but it is about local and state governments also taking this into account and, and thinking hard about this and trying to get ahead of the curve. And some of the uh, conversation that I've heard coming out of Sandy has been heartening to hear, uh, to hear some of that conversation and some of that dialogue. Uh, I think uh, in some respects, domestically, um, except in certain areas where you've had uh, a lower capacity to be able to, to withstand these shocks and stresses, um, it hasn't been as wide a, a conversation as it has been on the, on the global scene. And so it's good to hear that start to surface. It's interesting, um, you know, so part of the policy portfolio I have at USAID is, is about our conversations on uh, after the millennium, the, this millennium development goals, which are supposed to be achieved by 2015. So there's also a lot of talk uh, at the UN and, and in other places about what will the next wave of Millennium Development Goals be beyond uh, 2015? And resilience is already being bandied about as you know, a candidate for a Millennium Development Goal. Understanding uh, what we're facing with climate change and what we're gonna be facing with the severity of shocks that continue to occur. And so I, I, think, it's, I think it's important to keep the, uh, the conversation at a high level and, and have, have political attention to it. I'm going to ask just one last question, um, and then I'm going to turn it over to the audience uh, for audience questions. Um, because I think this is uh, very, very uh, important. It goes back to uh, the accountability piece with philanthropy, because I think everyone asks this question over and over again. Um, so I'm going to go back to you, Bob, on this one. Um, I have so many questions to ask, and but this is I'm so thrilled to hear all of you kind of speaking in the same language um, domestically and internationally, corporately, you know, academically. Um, so it, it really does excite me. But um, the New York State Charities Bureau is looking at about a hundred different charities and philanthropic organizations to determine how to support um, um, money that's been raised around Sandy and how it's being spent because that's obviously people immediately set up funds. Um, is disaster philanthropy accountable enough to the cause of relief and recovery or is this um, investigation warranted? Yeah, that's a great question I, and I think it's a question that donors are asking a lot these days and it's it's probably the number one question I get from reporters. Right. Uh, so let me start by saying I'm pleased that the Attorney General has done this. Um, we have a Sandy Fund, the Center for, for Disaster Philanthropy has a, a Sandy Fund. So we got Good a luck. so we got a letter from the uh, Attorney General, and he's asking seven questions, and there are seven questions that every donor wants to know before they make a contribution. Simple questions: What are you doing? Do you have expertise in this area? How much money are you going to keep for yourself? How are you going to spend this money? Um, uh, and these are the kind of questions I think donors want to know about disaster philanthropy. I think we're at a moment now, um, Tony's point was about can, we, can this enthusiasm about um, disaster philanthropy, uh, can we sustain that? 
And I think part of the equation of whether we can sustain this or not is can we keep donor trust and confidence about, um, about um, how the money is being spent. I would say for the, um, yes, there are scams um, that occur in times of disaster, just like there are scams that occur all the time. So there, there are those who are taking advantage of it. I think it's, it's, a, it's a very small um, number of individuals or organizations that are involved in scams. I think the bigger issue for all of us in philanthropy is, are we using our money effectively? And I know from my last 10 years in this field, the, um, the field has changed from a time when all we expected of nonprofits is to be uh, uh, transparent and accountable. And that was a big issue 10 years ago. Are you willing to be open about what you do and how you do it? And we're starting to see the dialogue now switching to, yes, but are you doing what you said you were going to do? Are you really making a difference in your work? And so I think over the next few years, we're going to begin to see more and more demand from donors and from um, not just institutional donors, but from individuals wanting to know more about a, uh, a nonprofit's capabilities and capacities and ultimately their impact. And so I think that's a good thing because um, as this panel's been saying, we expect the number of disasters to increase. We expect the demand for dollars to continue to increase. So we're gonna have to spend our money more effectively and more wisely. Did I make a comment? Absolutely. Um, I think you said something initially when you said that uh, the not-for-profit sector represents about 8%, 10% of GDP, somewhere around right. that, that frame. And I think that's a, a really critical point, which is the moment for effective philanthropy is to be the tail that wags the dog. It can never be the big dog in the room when it comes to recovery. Clearly, it's government. It's major you know, governmental funding, that is the, the lion's share by far. Mm -hmm. um, and so if philanthropy simply looks at gap filling, then it has lost a huge opportunity. It is, it's this moment when you can leverage something else, something that you've talked about as being multi-sectoral, where you're trying to get, we've all talked about how useful it would be to get collaboration. You know, what Tony is saying about having um, the humanitarian folks sitting at the same table as the planners. You know, all of those things, they're not, they're ordinarily not funded by government, these sort of in-between sticky things that will make the, the recovery work better and make it more effective. And that's how I think, to the best extent possible, if we could figure out a way to make an effective lever for that small amount. Maybe we've raised a billion dollars at most for Sandy Relief compared to the 80 to 100 that it's gonna actually take in a recovery effort. Right. So speaking to the nimble and agile nature right. of philanthropy and and how, how you like to call it, I love your risk. Yeah, I call it risk capital. I think risk one of the most um, extraordinary things uh, 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 and characteristics I like to see with philanthropy is that it's the risk capital. It's the capital that we can invest in some of the things you're talking about, the interstitial um, activity or the coordination activity that um, has some long-term implications but may take some time, needs to be patient capital and well, as well as being risk capital. That's excellent. I'd love to open up to some audience questions. I don't want to cheat the audience. Um, 
Does anyone have any questions? There's a microphone over here. Um, I think we want people to go to the microphone. I think we're you're supposed to go to the microphone. microphone. So we can right? record this. Yeah, we're recording this event. Yeah. Microphone? Yeah. Okay. <coughs> Jerry Brown from the, is this on? Yep. Mm -hmm. Jerry Brown from the Institute for Economic Sovereignty. Great panel. Thank you very much for doing it. Um, and thank the sponsors. Um, curious about your interaction with the, uh, with the military on disaster relief and, you know, a number of the things that were mentioned here. There are, uh, I can't remember the gentleman who was doing Kyrgyzstan, but, you know, there's an American base there. Um, you know, there's a huge American presence, you know, military presence in the Horn of Africa. Um, to anyone who wants to respond, um, what's your, what's the uh, role the military has played either domestically or overseas in uh, agile, effective disaster relief? Um, and if you answer that, I won't even think of bringing up FEMA. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. We, we do coordinate with the uh, military command. We've com uh, coordinated, we coordinate with NORTHCOM and Southern Command and EUCOM. Um, in, in Haiti, it was critical to get uh, supplies from the airport to the last mile with their support. So a lot of what we do uh, with our logistics emergency teams is coordinate on the ground locally with the um, military presence to make sure that we can get the supplies and they're protected. Um, that's really the extent of it from, a, from our perspective. We don't, we don't do a lot um, beyond that with the military. I will share that within the past couple of years we have hosted some conversations with NORTHCOM and SOUTHCOM and mm -hmm and shared some experiences and they, they were exploring um, how our company could help with some mm -hmm. logistical um, questions and concerns. And I thought it was a very healthy conversation. I think um, the military was very open. Um, one of the suggestions we made to them was much like I mentioned earlier, I mean, we, our strength is letting us uh, into areas so that we can replenish, so that we can get those, those needed items of merchandise into the areas that are suffering the greatest. So kind of our, our message was, you know, open up the roadways and let us in and we will be there with, with the merchandise that's, that's needed in those areas. My name is Pete Berlowitz. I'm on the Board of Directors of Fuller Center for Disaster Rebuild. We are kind of a cousin of Habitat for Humanity. We, uh, in a disaster environment, one of the differences, we don't have a model that requires uh, mortgages or sweat equity, so we can come into an environment and help people get, on a, on a, get up and running. My question, or I, I agree seeing that, you know, federal money and state money is running out. We're not, we're not seeing that in Sandy. and. Uh, uh, in, in Katrina, we got $10,000 from Red Cross. We get $10,000 per house, I'm sorry, per house. Salvation Army, uh, governor's money. So we had enough money basically to build the homes and environment we were building in. We're, uh, as I said, we're, this is running out. So our, my question is, how do we have access to some of the organizations that, you, that philanthropic, philanthropic organizations, how can we get access to that kind of th thing? Uh, well, uh, you know, from a private sector, we, we, we look for organizations, again, St. Bernard Project is an organization that um, in, in, in uh, Katrina and in New Orleans came in because there was a, a, a challenge, uh, you know, there was struggles because of where these houses were and 
what were the rules against uh, rebuilding from a FEMA perspective and um, you know we have people on the ground that um, support that organization as I said earlier um, the, the best way for people to connect in our world is to engage them through like volunteer engagement we tell our uh, NGOs that come to us looking for for funding or support um, the best way to do it is is if our people are connected to you they will raise the what you do to the foundation we'll start at a low level of support and and it will grow and it will grow into a long-term commitment so bottom up brother bottom up is yeah the and best i was going to say the same thing from philanthropy start local um what I think a national donor is going to want to know is, do you have local support? So if you're in an area, are the, the local uh, community foundations, private foundations, individual donors um, pleased with your work and therefore willing to support it? And that's yeah. going to tell your story most effectively, I think, for national philanthropists. And you mentioned NVOAD. Is that also a resource or not on this area? Uh, yeah, National VOAD is uh, essentially a, a consortium of all the faith-based organizations uh, across America, and, and they work very closely as a puzzle and come together, and each plays a key role in um, the, the response and the recovery sector. So you should get to know the VOAD players in, in your, your state. In your state. In your state, in your state. state. yeah. Right. yeah I'm, I'm very familiar with the organization, yeah. so I just... Right. Right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. just, to, just to take a step back, and this is drawing more on my Katrina experience and, and <laughs> former experience in my philanthropic world, but just to take a step back, I mean, the, the question and, uh, implies and the issue implies some, of, some things that we actually find that are still very real, which is uh, there's sometimes, especially in Katrina, for example, an enormous amount of private philanthropic resources were leveraged. I mean, there are huge pools of money, both for individuals and, and philanthropies. But, uh, but getting it to organizations on the ground can be a challenge. Um, uh, national organizations that are national response organizations uh, usually have pre-existing relationships. Uh, we mm -hmm. talked about that yeah. even as we went around the panel. Um, and, and that makes perfect sense, because those are the organizations that we know are going to be on the ground um, from a national perspective. But a lot of local organizations um, that aren't disaster response organizations turn into disaster response organizations. <laughs> and they are many times the first, they are often the first responder. Um, they are who communities trust. Uh, you know, we saw pop-up shelters uh, all over the place sure. in Katrina within churches and, and, and local community-based organizations. And there was a bottleneck of, try, of those organizations trying to access resources that were, uh, that were being donated and also from the philanthropic side, them trying to find those particular uh, organizations as well. Local community foundations and local community funds did a good job to, uh, within their capacity, but, um, but they are also affected by the disaster as well. And so keeping their systems up and running and their people. Um, and so things like you know, loaned executives on the ground that can help those local organizations start to uh, spend money, I think, was very important. But starting to create also online platforms and other platforms that can uh, help ease the flow of money. Um, there are questions of accountability that you'll come back to, and so mm -hmm. those systems have to be quickly set up and put in place. Mm -hmm. But it's an issue, and it's not an issue, I think, that the philanthropic community has solved yet. No, it is, in fact, uh, Tony wrote a paper for the Aspen Institute right after Katrina um, about the philanthropic response, and it 
still reads very true mm -hmm. um, if you read it today, mm -hmm. um, seven years later. My name is Chef Ball. I'm with Team Rubicon. Uh, we utilize veteran skills to uh, respond rapidly to disaster sites around the world and at home. Uh, we led over 10,000 volunteers up in Hurricane Sandy Relief up in New York. Uh, it was pretty incredible with a staff of only seven people. Uh, but my question is for Dr. Abramson. Um, actually, we uh, got a lot of help from Columbia student vets, so <coughs> thank you to your university. But so you mentioned that this is about to get more form formulaic, uh, mm -hmm. a stronger bureaucracy is going to be involved. Do you view that as a good or a bad sign? Um, we tend to believe that uh, that leads to a lot of slow responses from organizations, um, and that you know groups like Team Rubicon can kind of bridge that gap with a very quick response. Um, what, what's your view on the matter? Uh, I would say both. It has both good and bad things. So for example, um, under the guise of the, the National Recovery Disaster Framework, uh, there are now recovery support functions that are the equivalent in the response world of emergency support functions. And so you're going to have people at federal, state, and local levels when this is fully rolled out that are going to have very specific job tasks, job action sheets that are oriented towards recovery actions and activities. And to some extent, that's a great thing because then it could take the kind of volunteer pool that you would offer and be able to more effectively coordinate it. Those are all the good things about those types of frameworks. The bad things are they become, you know, like Max Weber talked about years ago, these little bureaucracies that then have their own rules and that are hard to penetrate. And if you don't fit the exact measure of uh, you know, eligibility, maybe you can't come in with your, your volunteer organization, and that would be a bad thing. And so it's kind of incumbent upon all of us as, we're, as this is evolving to make sure that it has that ongoing flexibility, which it has to have, to be able to accommodate you know, a volunteer surge that we know is going to occur. And then, in fact, we depend upon, at least in the response phase. I think the bigger question is, can we get it in the recovery phase, too? We, we focus so much on the response phase, but we need it in the recovery phase as well. Great. Thank you. And Team Rubicon is an excellent organization. Yeah. I just want you to know. Thank you. And we've got some copies of our after-action report from Hurricane Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be over there. Thank you. There was a nice piece on Team Rubicon uh, during last night's concert. Yeah. Mm. In between set changes, they did a nice five-minute segment. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Right. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is Chris Paleski. I'm with World Vision. And uh, it seems like resilience is built into everything these days. So the industry, everything is resilience. In meetings, everybody says resilience. So in the government sector, we're seeing there's a whole foundation built now for resilience. And within World Vision, we're looking at resilience in all of our programming. I'm wondering within corporations if these same discussions are going on right now to support and partner with organizations and with government uh, with the, the view of supporting resilience. Yeah, no, absolutely those conversations are taking place. And um, something I wanted to, to point out that we support, we believe in, Mark has personally been involved in helping FEMA organize the concept of a National Business Emergency Operations Center. Some states have adopted this concept of the National Business Emergency Operations Center. And it's all about resilience. It's so many of us in the private sector, what we need is information we need problem solving. And so that's what we believe that concept will deliver and we do wholeheartedly support those. 
Uh, in fact, I'd echo that. Yeah, we, in 2008, we put a loan manager into FEMA as they stood up their <coughs> logistics division to you know, try to provide guidance. Um, uh, how do you credential a logistics expert? Um, we, we work with the uh, Georgia Tech Institute from an academic standpoint. We work with Harvard uh, uh, Humanitarian Institute and internationally. Um, even with, we work with our competitors. Uh, the LET program is, is a collaboration of our competitors, and we put aside our competitiveness to, uh, to work towards resiliency. And, uh, and even uh, we're working on an initiative now that World Vision is a part of with CARE, uh, a project called Sustain that helps um, create more resilient uh, nonprofits in, in communities by aggregating things like procurement of fuel and helping the nonprofits um, be more sustainable long term. Not everybody buying the same thing, being able to aggregate, give you all uh, a big uh, uh, incentive, a discount off of what you would normally be doing. So those are the kind of things that we try to, to bring to strengthen every capacity, whether it be nonprofit or helping FEMA or working with academics to bring their skill sets into this uh, arena where they can uh, develop modeling tools that nonprofits can use, et cetera. Hi, thank you for coming. Um, my name is Molly Jones. I'm from the NORC at the University of Chicago, and my question um, is for Bob. Um, and I think, as we all know here, um, resilience is an incredibly broad field, community resilience included. And um, I think that when you go about allocating resources for, for that, that's um, a lot of short-term and long-term implications and different programs you can do. So I was curious to hear about your decision-making framework um, for the short and long-term. Um, are you looking at vulnerable populations? Are you looking at infrastructure? What is what goes into that thought process? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, uh, we we tend to focus on um, first of all on vulnerable populations. Um, uh, I took a tour of Staten Island a few weeks ago, and I was really struck by the impact on vulnerable populations uh, in in the Sandy. Um, Situation. The Times reported last week that um, um, half of all public housing in the New York City area is in um, coastal areas. So we want to first of all focus on vulnerable populations, and by that we mean uh, the poor, the elderly, the handicapped, um, uh, the disabled in, in any way. Um, but we also want to focus on children. Um, I was also struck in my tour. Uh, of Staten Island about the impact of, of daycare centers uh, and what losing one daycare center can do to, to the fabric of the neighborhood and how many schools were affected and how. Um, so that's going to be another uh, impact, a focus of our work. A, a third is, is going to be mental health. Um, and, and Lori has really written a lot about this and um, uh, is really a, the expert in this area. Um, but you begin to hear the stories of people that were rescued um, or from a storm, or you hear stories about people who have been, um, had to leave their home um, in the middle of the night and may not ever be able to come back home to it. So the mental health issues are likely to continue for a long, long time. That's going to be where a lot of our focus on. Um, and I think, you know, this whole issue of how do you rebuild a neighborhood? And some of the panels have been talking about, should you rebuild it? And, if you, how do you rebuild it? But how do you replace a place where, um, you know, uh, you had a home and you had a neighborhood and you had uh, a religious institution and you had um, 
friends and neighbors, and um, replacing all that is going to be very difficult. Um, so that's going to be another part of our focus. So, you know, something that you. struck me during our uh, response to Hurricane Sandy was the number of requests that we received for merchandise for the sheltering facilities, uh, especially those for mothers to care for their children and infants. Um, there was a tremendous need that was elevated for those types of, of, um, of merchandise because of the prolonged effects of, of the sheltering. You know, David said something earlier that I think is really important and, and can speak to what uh, philanthropy uh, can also keep front and center, and that is, you know, the larger share of dollars, especially domestically, are going to be public funds. And so when you talk about chronic uh, or vulnerable uh, populations, it's not just about getting services to those particular populations, but also advocacy can play an enormous role because building the capacity for those uh, populations to actually advocate as the systems and the processes are being put in place for how those public funds are deployed um, can be, you know, can have significant impact. Hello, um, my name is Patricia Huffman and I'm a grad student in nonprofit management at Trinity here in Washington. And uh, I first want to say it's awesome to hear about corporate responsibility. That's wonderful. My question is for Tony. Um, do, you, do, do you ever have to deal with um, countries who don't want you there or skimming from, you know, as a result of corruption? Um, well, in, in terms of corruption, I mean, you know, we do, we have systems put in place uh, to be able to protect the tax, your tax dollars that are going to, at work. Um, and in fact, it's, it's one of the things that, uh, you know, and this happens even domestically as well, it, it's one of the things that can make government less nimble, shall we say, uh, because of the, the accountability structures that we need in place. Um, we are, you know, constantly, and, and there was a question even earlier about uh, working with the military, but we are constantly um, looking to sometimes deploy humanitarian assistance in political hotspots around the world. We have to keep the security of our folks first and foremost, and so take that into account. And we also have to uh, ensure that, you know, those dollars are going to be well spent, or at least have some comfort level that they'll be well spent. When I talked about the work that we're doing on resilience, we actually made good governance uh, a defining principle of how we think about building resilience. We actually think that it would be very hard to be successful in building a resilience at, at the levels that I talked about, community and the household, but also at the, uh, at the regional and systemic level without having um, leadership and ownership by the host countries where we're working. Uh, that's not to say that, you know, going to be airtight, but uh, we've also made a commitment through reforms that we're undertaking uh, to work more through uh, local systems and to, to build the capacity of those host country governments uh, as well as local civil society or NGOs that we, might be, uh, that we might be supporting as well. Thank you, Tony. Well, we are out of time. Sorry, we're, we're out of time and there. Look, the commander, I can't look. <laughs> I, I, the military guy is... 
no. other time. But thank you. <laughs> well, I want to, uh, my name is Rick Ozzie Nelson, and on uh, behalf of John Hamry, thank you all for attending. Um, we're going to thank our panelists in a moment here, but afterwards, we do have a reception with beverages and food, so please stay to continue the conversation, those of you that had additional questions. But I want to thank all of our panelists. This is kind of a groundbreaking event for us um, to have this, this, this mixture up here, so thank you all for your time. Some of you traveled. <laughs> Lori, Bergman, the Pennington Family Foundation, and from Walmart. Uh, thank you very much. I enjoy that I'm going to turn my mic off. Well, God, I, I, could, I mean, I had so much to ask you guys. I, I mean, I knew, I knew it was you always, it, the minute you went around, it would be 